All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to You Be the Judge. I hope you are ready for an exceptional class tonight, an exciting class. We have a lot to talk about and a lot for you to weigh in on because a lot of people are waiting for their judgments because you be the judge. You guys got to be the judge. So we're waiting on this. All right, I want to start with a story, very serious story. Story that, and you know my stories, how serious they are, especially when they open a class. All right, so this story goes as follows. The story goes that there was once a yeshiva. Yeshiva means like a Jewish academy, academy of study. There was once a yeshiva in Eastern Europe back in the days. And uh, that's where when parents had a daughter of, elig- of marriageable age, of you know, eligible daughter to get married, so they used to contact the yeshiva and ask if they knew a suitable young man for their daughter because they wanted a Torah scholar. If they wanted a Torah scholar, that's what they would call. They didn't, they didn't call the yeshiva. Anyway, if they wanted a Torah scholar, they would call the yeshiva. And when I say call, not like pick up the phone, but they would send a message. This is back in the day. Okay, so one, turned, one day or a matter of, uh, you know, in the same, amount, the same time period, turns out that there were two families from the same shtetl, from the same little town, that uh, had daughters of marriageable age. And they both sent, they privately, both independently, sent messages to the yeshiva looking for a suitable young man for their daughter. Okay? And so the messages were sent out, and the head of the yeshiva got the, got the, got the messages, and he handpicked... A uh, young man for one family, young man for the other family, for the one girl, for the other girl. And uh, it's time to date. So what happens? So they, they, they got the young man a train ticket to go to the shtetl to meet the, to meet the respective uh, young women. Okay. That's how dating used to happen. You get on a train and you go to the, to the, to the young lady's uh, hometown and, and you go out. You check out the situation. Well, sure enough... Here's what happens. Sure enough, at the last minute, one of the young men gets cold feet. You know what happens? It happens sometimes. You know, one of the one of the participants gets cold feet. He decides he's not getting on the train. He's not interested in dating. He wants to study in yeshiva. That's it. All right. So so only one of the guys, only one of the young men, one of the yeshiva students, ended up on the train. But the word doesn't reach the shtetl because how could it? No one has phones, WhatsApp, text message. Facebook, Instagram, no, Snapchat, no one's got any, it's back in the day. So, the, so at the train station, you have the two mothers, the two mothers of the young women standing at the train station waiting for the train to come in, right? So there's Mrs. So-and-so and Mrs. So-and-so waiting for the train. The train stops, pulls into the station, and only one young man, one yeshiva student comes out. Two, two mothers and one young boy, one young man. Oh, each one grabs an arm. They say, you are supposed to be my daughter. No, you're supposed to be my daughter. He has no idea. This guy doesn't know who it's, who it's supposed to be. Uh, and, and meanwhile, you have these two mothers pulling him, schlepping him. So what do you do? What do you do in a case of a dispute? You go to the rabbi. You go to the rabbi. You go to the rabbi. So they each, the mother-in-laws, you know, each is grabbing an arm. They, they schlepped this young guy. They schlepped this young man to the rav, to the rabbi of the town. And each one says, each one says, this is, this is my potential son-in-law. No, this is my potential son-in-law. 
So what is the rabbi supposed to do? How does he know? He has no clue. So he strokes his beard and he channels his inner Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon. He channels his inner Solomonic wisdom. And he says, all right, so what should we do? We're going to split. We're going to cut the young man in half and divide him. Half for this family, half for that family. One of the women, one of the mother, one of the mothers says, that's horrific. How could you? The other one says, yes, let's do it. The rabbi turns to the second one and he says, oh, this, this is the true mother-in-law. My friends, welcome. You got the joke? Okay, perfect. This is the real mother-in-law. Thank you, thank you. All right, so, my friends, listen, it's a a long setup. Hopefully the punchline landed. Um, It landed. Good, good. Hopefully (laughs) it landed. Did it crash or it landed? Two different. All right, friends, this is You Be the Judge. And today we talk about cases of disputed ownership. Now, I want to contrast this. Last week we spoke about cases of mislaid property. We're talking, last week we spoke about if you find a treasure, you know, abandoned treasure on someone's property. That was last week. This week we talk about more classic cases of disputed ownership. Classic cases of dispute where two parties each claim to be the owners of a single item or a single piece of land. The question that comes up to the court is, who's the owner? And how do you figure that out? And so tonight we're going to have multiple cases, several cases of disputed ownership. And you and I are going to use our intuition, our wisdom, and of course Talmudic insight as well to address and solve these puzzles. Tonight we're also going to have a very cool, a very unique opportunity and a very interesting opportunity to study areas of Jewish law as they appear in the teachings of Jewish mysticism. And this will be based on the, 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 the premise that Torah is holistic. And therefore, the, the, the legal dimension of Torah and the mystical dimension of Torah are really one and the same. In other words, they, they're, they're all part of the same continuum. So we're going to see at the end of the class, we're going to see how legal ideas also have a source and a manifestation in the mystical dimension as well, on a spiritual, personal, psychological level too. All right, with that introduction out of the way, let's begin with our first case study. The first case study takes us back a number of years to a case that went in front of the U.S. courts, a very fascinating case, and I think you will... um, I think you will be intrigued by this. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share my screen and put the case up on the screen for everybody to check out. And let's do this. Oh, it's a long case. I think I'm going to read this one. It's a very long text. And uh, the interest of sparing someone from reading a lot of words, so I'll take it away. All right, can you guys see that? Deciding disputed ownership in the absence of proof? Okay. So this is a case that came before the U.S. courts in the early 2000s. So I said a number of years ago, not that many years ago, actually. All right, in late 1999 or 2000, Thomas Law Wilcox found a shopping bag in a closet at his late stepmother's home containing 444 documents dated between December 1860 and August 1864. Oh, so the papers are very old. The papers included 
U.S. Civil War Confederate military papers, correspondence, and telegrams between various Confederate generals and government officials and other records related to the duties of the governors. Essentially, government papers. Wilcox sold a few of the papers and then scheduled an auction for August 7, 2004 to sell the remaining documents. The auctioneer publicized the upcoming sale and was contacted by defendant Stroop, I think Stroop, who sought permission to microfilm the papers for the state archives prior to the auction. Wilcox authorized the copying, and the pages were microfilmed. On the day before the auction, Stroop and the Attorney General's Office for the State of South Carolina obtained a temporary restraining order in state court enjoining the sale of the papers, declaring the state to be the owner of the papers under South Carolina law. So this guy thinks he's going to make a killing. This guy thinks he's going to uh, sell these papers at auction. And then they're microfilmed. A day before the auction, the state says, actually, they belong to us. Nice try with the sale. They're not private property. They belong to the state. Now, the collection, back inside, has been appraised as, uh, um, as worth more than $2 million. The papers seem to have come into Wilcox's family through his great-great-uncle, Confederate Major General Evander McIver Law, who most likely came into possession of them during the February 1865 attack on the South Carolina Capitol by Union General William Tecumseh Sherman. On February 15, 1865, then-Governor A.G. McGrath declared martial law in Columbia and appointed General Law, this guy's great-great-great-uncle, the Provost Marshal of the city. On, Feb Feb on February 16th, 1865, a large number of state archives and records were removed from Columbia for safekeeping, probably a little over 444 of them. On February 17th, 1865, General Law was relieved of his duties as Provost Marshal, and General Sherman of the, uh, of the Union, the North, took control of Columbia. The parties submit no direct evidence of how General Law came into possession of the papers, nor is there any suggestion that he did so illegally, although it seems clear from this, from this record that it happened on February 16th, 1865, when he was appointed the Provost Marshal of the city. It seems like he took these records for safekeeping. Okay, let's continue. In 1896, how many years is that? 11, uh, sorry, 31 years later, General Law, wrote a letter to a New York book dealer regarding the sale of some letters which appeared to be part of this collection. In the 1940s, General Law's granddaughter, Annie Storm, attempted to sell the papers to both the University of North Carolina and the South Carolina Library of the University of South Carolina. No sale resulted, but the papers were placed on microfilm at the Southern Historical Collection at the University of North Carolina. While the precise route by which these Civil War-era gubernatorial papers arrived in the shopping bag in Wilcox's stepmother's closet remains a mystery. It appears that the papers have been in the possession of the Law and Wilcox families for over 140 years. So, here's the question. Does Wilcox have a right to the papers, or do they belong to the state of South Carolina? My friends, that was a very long case study. Very long case study. I'm going to say, I'm going to try to say it in less than 30 seconds. We have a guy who finds a bunch of papers in his stepmother's home. They're government papers of historical value, worth over, valued at over $2 million. He tries to sell it. 
the state gets wind of it. They try to block the sale. They're claiming they belong to the state. He says, I don't know who it belongs to. It belongs to us. It's been in the family for 100, over 140 years. It's ours, right? It's not finders keepers. It's, it's our family's papers, even though, though they're government papers, but it's been in the family for all these years. My 30 seconds is up, and he's claiming the right to the papers. Who do you think, who do you think should have a right to these very valuable papers before you unmute yourself and jump in. Before we discuss this, you know, what I, you know what I have? I have a poll. It's a poll question so that you can document, so that you can register your vote, right? Don't forget, every vote counts. Here's the poll. I'm about to put it up. This is less than three, so we have 3.1, and I'm launching the poll right now. You be the judge. Who should be awarded ownership of the Civil War papers? Thomas Law Wilcox or the state of South Carolina. Remember, remember, this is your chance to toggle your vote. Please jump in. Wow, we are split. All right, tiebreakers happening. All right, we've got a few more people that have not yet weighed in. Remember, all it takes is a click of the button. Super easy. We're making it very easy to vote in this context. Going to give another five seconds, four, three, two, one. All right, we're ending poll. Let's check out the results. Can you guys see the results or just me? No, you do. Okay. All right, I'm going to read the results the way that I see them. 54% of you, a very slim majority margin, says that they believe that the paper should be awarded to Thomas Law Wilcox. A minority of you, 46%, say the state of South, South Carolina should be awarded the papers. So it's a very, very close voting. So we have, we have 13 people who voted, seven voted Wilcox, six voted South Carolina. By the slimmest of margins, you guys feel that Wilcox should be awarded the papers. All right, I want to discuss this. Open up your mics. All right, jump in. If you believed that Wilcox should retain possession of the papers, tell me why. It's not simple. But I'll tell you why I say he should be. As a man from the South, Mark. As a man from the South. Give it to me straight. Sherman is legend in the South for burning down everything Southern. Now, Wilcox was a, an employee of the state for a very brief time, and he spirited the papers out when he wasn't. So he did that individually. Because... But here, here's the point. If he hadn't done this, they would, have been, they would have been burned up, destroyed, no question. They would not have been safe. But again, it's not that simple. I think he should, he should get a lot of it, but not all of it. Because well, while Sherman would have destroyed them, they were indeed the property of the Confederate state of South Carolina. Interesting. Okay, okay, good. No, no, no. I, that's my take. That's a, that's a good... That... man of the South... South Philadelphia. <laughs> I would like to say that uh, he didn't care about papers. He cared about feeding, and he only attacked. I'm not defending Sherman because he was a he was a great general, but uh, because a man was had him for a while doesn't make him his. Okay. He was a he was a. What they call uh, uh, he represented the state. He kept the the paper safe. 
He did his job, and they should go back to the state. Okay, that's yeah. the sending opinion. Good, uh, good. Yes, uh, Morris. You know, in this particular situation, there's a lot of assumptions by the state. <clears throat> Possession is nine-tenths of the law. Right. And as a result of that, you make these assumptions when they, there's no validity to those assumptions. So how could they take a man's property with assumptions rather than facts? In other words, what you're saying is that how do we know that uh, General Law took anything illegally? Maybe he was gifted the papers. Right, but it was the assumption of the, of the state that he did. Right. So that's, that's, that's pretty poor as far as... Okay. Good point. All right, Judy, jump in. He's had the papers. The family's had them for 140 years, whatever. They're, he's in possession. They're his. There's no question. Okay. All right. Anybody want to weigh in? Yes, Donna. I mean, to me, it seems like the spoils of war, and generally the spoils of war don't necessarily, in many circumstances, are returned to the original owner. Okay, good. All right, so we have, we have, we have the opinions uh, uh, spanning the, the spectrum of thought over here, and I love it because this is exactly what the court had to deal with. You should know it went through three court systems, three levels of courts, and each one flipped it one way and the other way. The final, the final ruling came down. Um, the final uh, uh, hearing happened before the Fourth Circuit, the U.S. Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. It's a very high-level court. And that court ruled, all right, drum roll. Sorry. All right, drum roll. That court ruled, the Fourth Circuit ruled, that, as some of you mentioned, possession is nine-tenths of the law. There is no way to know. There is no way to know how he got possession. You know, was it, you know, was it illegal? Was it legal? We don't know. But what we do know is that for 140 years, it's been in the family. And to take it away would require a preponderance of proof that it doesn't belong to the Wilcox, the Law and Wilcox families. And the court ruled, the highest court ruled, the highest court that it went to at least ruled, that there wasn't that type of evidence, and thus it needs to remain in the possession of Mr. Wilcox, who could then sell it as he wishes. That was what the, that's what the court ruled. The court ruled, um, I'm going to paraphrase, an absence of clear evidence for either side. We must return to the basic tenet that possession is nine-tenths of the law. Now, the presumption of that law, and, and, and we're going to focus on that today. We're going to focus on that idea of possession as nine-tenths of the law. So this presumption is not a conclusive determination. Let's be very clear here. It's not like the court is saying, we know it belongs to Wilcox. Are you with me on this? The court doesn't know who it belongs to. But what the court is saying is absent of a preponderance of evidence or clear evidence for either side, the preferred route to take is to leave it where it lies, is to shift the burden of proof to the side that's trying to disrupt the status quo of ownership, or at least a possession. Does that make sense? Yeah? Yes. Status, so the, 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 the burden of proof is on the other side. Now, what's the basis? What's the basis, uh, the, the conceptual basis of possession is nine-tenths of the law? So I want to cite a few ideas that I think will resonate. I want to cite three things. Number one, 
having a rule such as possession is nine-tenths of the law gives us the ability to cut through an otherwise impenetrable dispute. In other words, in cases where there's no way to proceed because we literally have no evidence either way. It's something that happened 140 years ago. We have no written uh, evidence. We have no witness evidence. There's no document that talks about the documents. We don't know what the status is of these documents, whose possession they should be in. So in a case where you have an impenetrable dispute, you just don't know what to do, having a, having a, 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 a rule, so to speak, or having a, a mechanism such as possession, nine-tenths of the law, allows the court to determine possession where there are no other you know, strong mitigating factors. That's number one. So pragmatically, it allows us to proceed and come up with some sort of verdict. Number two, a rule like possession is nine-tenths of the law protects the right of long-time possessors, freeing them of the constant fear of having to produce evidence of their, of their proof. In other words, imagine if we said that there is no concept of possession nine-tenths of the law, and therefore, at any point, someone can claim that, oh, your couch in your house, that's mine. Then you would have to keep receipts. That would be very, uh, <laughs> would be very inconvenient. Now, some of us keep meticulous records, but some of us can't be bothered and shouldn't feel, feel like they shouldn't need to be bothered keeping historical, not historical evidence, keeping a record of all purchases and all receipts and all bills of sale, etc., that can verify and corroborate that this thing in my house is really mine. That seems highly inconvenient. So therefore, the law will say, possession nine-tenths of the law. You know what? If it's in your possession, it's yours. We presume it's yours. We don't know for sure, but we're presuming it's yours. If someone else claims it, they have a, the burden of proof. You don't have to prove, you don't have to prove it to keep it. They have to prove it to take it. Make sense? That's point number two. So point number one is it allows us a path forward when there's a deadlock. Number two is that it frees up people who actually own property or own items from having to furnish, keep and furnish proof, uh, you know, for all time. Number three, it reduces the extent by which the courts will actively disrupt property settlement by leaving it in the domain of the possessor. The courts would rather leave things as they are than uproot and disrupt property ownership by saying, we think it belongs to someone else. That's a, that's a big move from the court. Again, when the court doesn't have that evidence, it would rather play a more passive role than a more disruptive role. These are three of the, when, in, in, in exploring the legal texts and legal philosophers, these are three what we would call in Hebrew, svaris, three logical um, uh, you know, underpinnings or philosophical underpinnings for this law, for this rule of possession is nine-tenths of the law. So, to summarize, we started off with a case, we started off with a joke, but then we moved to a case study. And the case study was about these historical papers. The question is, do they belong to the family or the state? And, I sh and we had a very good conversation with arguments on both sides. Ultimately, I told you that the highest court that, that it went to, the Fourth uh, Circuit Court of Appeals, that court ruled to keep it in the possession of the family, citing possessions, nine-tenths of the law. Again, that doesn't mean that we know it belongs to them. It just means that, number one, it gives us a path forward. Number two, it frees up uh, property owners, uh, the, it frees them up from having to furnish proof. And number three, it avoids the disruption the, the disruption of, of, of possession when, again, we don't have clear evidence to the contrary. So in cases, in, in this case, in cases like this, and this is very important, U.S. law 
consistently will rule. I mean, I can't say consistently, but very often U.S. law, U.S. courts will rule that possession is nine-tenths of the law, which means that if you want to take it away from the one who has possession, then you're climbing, you're climbing the mountain. You have an uphill battle, right? You, you, can, you, can, you can pull that off. It can, it can happen. In other words, it's not impossible for it to happen. You can pull that off, but you're going to be climbing uphill. They don't have to climb uphill. They have it in their, in their possession. You want to pull it away, you got to climb uphill. You got, you got to furnish proof. You got to make a very strong argument for why we should disrupt the status quo. All right, let me jump back in with questions. Yeah. This is why the yeshiva boys should have gotten back on the train. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, after such, yeah, we don't know what happened next. The guy probably ran for the hills. All right, next, uh, Donna, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I agree with your analysis or, you know, what the general U.S. analysis is, but I thought this might be a different case because the state is seeking to claim it. So, you know, with the land and eminent domain, so I thought perhaps the state might have extra powers. One, one of the lower courts ruled exactly that. That was exactly the ruling of one of the lower courts. The higher court ruled that no, no. In fact, because... It's been in the possession of the family for 140 years. And again, we don't know what the terms of that were. It could be like what Mark said. Mark pointed out that Sherman burnt everything. So it could very well be that, the, that whoever was in charge said to, to law, when he put law in charge, he said, you know what? It's going to be destroyed. Take it. Enjoy it. Keep it in the family. We don't know what he said. There's no, there's no clear evidence that it was stolen or otherwise misappropriated. But the state is saying it's ours. We know it was yours. But we don't know that it is yours. And it hasn't been in your possession for 140 years. And so the burden of proof, the court ruled that the burden of proof is on the state. Sure, the state says it's, it's gubernatorial, it's, it's official documents. Sure, that's clear. But what's unclear is who the owner is. But we do know who the possessor is. It, listen, if it wasn't a question, it wouldn't be a good case study. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have gone up three, level, three layers of courts. It's a very good question. This is how the court landed in this case. Now, I, I want to... acted deviously. Say it again? The state acted deviously. A, a little bit, yeah. A little bit. I would agree with that. They asked to, to microfilm it, and then they... Yeah, yeah. They, they, they maneuvered. Correct. They, they definitely maneuvered. Now... Let's look at this, because as you know, this series is not just, uh, you know, U.S. law. This is about a Jewish perspective. So let's try to see what would Jewish law have to say about this? What would the Talmud, right, say about this type of question? Would the Talmud agree with possession as nine-tenths of the law? Would it disagree? Does it have another factor? As we'll see as we go through tonight's conversation inside the Talmud, we have some unbelievable ideas and incredible cases that the Talmud brings. And I'll tell you this. Tonight, you're going to have to help cup. Help cup means stay with me. Stay with me. If at any point I'm, I'm being unclear or things are confusing, stop me and let's clarify. I'd rather we clarify than I keep on moving because it's, it's a puzzle with building blocks. So step one, step two, step three, step four, step five. So we're going to layer this. So let's make sure we have everything solid. If you have any questions... I'm repeating this again. Any questions, jump in for clarification. So right now we're going to turn out to Jewish law. And see, does Jewish law prescribe to this notion of possession of nine-tenths of the law? Yes, no. And if yes, are there any limitations to this? As we'll see, it's complicated. 
All right. So now let's take a look at one of the most famous Talmudic um, discussions. Classic case of two people coming into court holding a talus. Who's familiar with this case? Two, two people walk into court holding a talus. Okay, well, I guess it's not that famous. But anyway, it is pretty famous within, <laughs> within Talmudic uh, literature. We're going to study this tonight. We are studying now, like, classic, just beautiful Talmudic, uh, ta a Talmudic sugya, a piece of Talmud. All right, I'm sharing my screen. Let's jump in, and we're going to ask Donna, please, to read. Do we're going to ask uh, Donna to please read text 1A. From the Talmud. Let me, let me make it a drop bigger. I see it's a little bit small. All right, here we go. Two claimants appear before a baked in holding onto a garment. One of them says, I found it, and the other says, I found it. One of them says, The whole garment is mine, and the other says, The whole garment is mine. The baked in resolves such conflicting claims in the following way One of the two claimants must take an oath that no less than half of the garment is his. And the other claimant must likewise take an oath that no less than half of it is his. They shall then divide the garment or its value between them. All right, so let's, let's focus on this case. I'm keeping it up on the screen. We have to make sure that we understand this case. Two people come in front, come before a betin. A betin, of course, is a Jewish court of law. And they're holding on to a garment. By the way, I said a talit. In Hebrew, it's shnaim och betalit. Talit meaning like a prayer shawl, but it doesn't have to be a prayer shawl. It could be any garment. Two people are coming in holding onto a single item. And each one claims to have found it. The classic case would be that let's say something was lying, something of value was lying in a public domain, and two people run over to it and they grab it. Let's say they grab it at the same time, or one grabbed it first, but they think that the other one thinks that they grabbed it first. Doesn't matter. At this point, they're both fighting over it and they're holding on to it, and they come into court and they're still fighting and they're still claiming it. So what's the resolution? What's the resolution? Each one has to take an oath, right? There's an oath that is administered, and the oath is that each one promises or swears that they have at least, at least, oh sorry, no less than 50% of the garment is theirs, okay? And then they divide the garment or its value between them. So if it's something that can be literally cut in, in half and divided, you do that. Otherwise you sell it. I, I would not recommend cutting an actual piece of clothing, but if it's something that could be you know, if it's a chocolate bar, for example, you just break the chocolate bar in half. Each one gets half. If it's something that that won't work, then you sell it and divide its value. So the key here is that there's a case and there's a ruling. The case is disputed ownership, and the ruling is divide the value. I have a question. I have a question. So in the, the ruling in this case is they split it 50-50. Based, based on this case... Based on this case and the ruling of the Talmud, I need to ask you the following question. Why do you think the Talmud rules that the garment is divided in half? Why do you think the Talmud rules that the, that the garment is divided in half? Jump in on this. Let's have a discussion. Why is it divided? Because, because nobody had it in the possession beforehand. Ah, uh, ah. Uh. So let me build on that question and ask another question. Why do you think the case of the Talmud is where both are holding on to the garment? What would, have, what would be the case, hold on, what would be the case if only one person was holding on to the garment and the other guy saying, but it's mine, but it's mine, but it's mine. What do you think the court would have ruled in that case? 
Uh, I don't know. Nine-tenths of the law? <laughs> ah, so, so we're going to see that Rashi says exactly that. The case of the Talmud is very precisely that two people are physically holding on to the item. Because what would be the case? What would be the law? If only one person was holding on to the garment and the other person was shouting, we would tell the court has no idea whose it is. The court has no, the court is not the psychic hotline. Remember the psychic hotline? That was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. They knew when you were calling. All right, sorry. So um, that's a joke. So, uh, <laughs> all right. So the psychic hotline. Okay, so my mom, you like the joke. All right, listen, but you're uh, you're Dover. You're, uh, you're biased on this. Back to the story. I'm your fan. I think, right, exactly. So two people are holding onto a talus, and the Talmud says, two people are holding onto a garment, the, ta the Talmud says, you divide it. What would happen if one person was holding onto the garment and the other person was shouting, it's mine? Again, the court doesn't know. The court doesn't have evidence. There is no evidence. No one furnished evidence. There are no receipts. The guy claimed to have found it. The other guy, he found it and then he grabbed it from me. We have no idea. But what we do know is that one party is holding onto the garment. What would be the law? What would be the ruling? I'm going to toggle the screen one more time. Let's put up the screen and let's look at Rashi. Rashi clarifies this, and it's absolutely beautiful. Morris, would you like to read this one? Sure. All right. The case in the Mishnah concerns a situation where both are holding the garment, i.e., they are both in possession of the garment. However, if the garment was held by one claimant only, when we do not grant any part of the garment to the other claimant, even with an oath, unless he produces concrete evidence, witnesses, that... The garment is his. So Rashi clarifies. Rashi, the great biblical and Talmudic commentary, Rashi clarifies that the case of the Talmud, or the Mishnah, is very precise. Two people are holding on to the, uh, to the garment, and that's why we split it. But if one person was holding on to the garment, then the other person must furnish concrete evidence that it's his. Otherwise, see you later, alligator. You get nothing. You get nothing. The one who holds it gets it. In other words, if I ask you the question, does Talmudic law have a notion of possession as nine-tenths of the law? The answer is absolutely yes. The Talmud agrees that, that possession is nine-tenths of the law. In fact, one could argue possession is ten-tenths of the law. If you have possession, again, obviously if there's other proof. But if there's no, we don't have any other evidence. But we just have a guy holding on to something and the other guy shouting that it's theirs. We have no clue. There's no evidence, no witnesses, no video, nothing. What do we do? You got to do something. We don't split it in that case. One person's holding on to it. The other guy, you want to take it out of his hands? You want us to force it out of his hands and give it to you? Then you provide the proof. Where's your proof, mister? He doesn't have, he's got it in his hands. He doesn't need to provide proof. Let's give two names. Reuven and Shimon. Yeah, Reuven and Shimon walk into court. So Reuven's holding on to a cashmere, uh, a Louis Vuitton, I don't know if Louis Vuitton makes this stuff, cashmere scarf wrap situation. Ah, it's valued at $395 before inflation, $495 after inflation, so it's a $500 cashmere situation because it's got the LV logo on it and whatever. All right, it's not a knockoff, it's the real deal. This guy, so one guy's holding it, the other one's saying, but it's mine, he took it, he stole it. The court's like, uh, he's got, you have, do you have proof? 
You have witnesses? Anything? Any drone footage? Anything? No, but it's mine. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. Possession of nine-tenths of the law. That's what Rashi says. The only time the Mishnah of the Talmud say that you split it is when shnayim ochzim is when both are holding on to the garment. If two people are holding on to it, then you don't have one as the possessor and the other one as the claimant. You have two people as the possessor, and then obviously you split it because then both have the nine-tenths of the law, and that's the equitable response. Are you with me on this? I, I'm doing this I'm repeating it because I already told you before. This is a building block. We have building blocks here. I want to make sure everyone's got it. So level one, layer one, yeah, we're good? You got the foundation of this? Okay. Beautiful. Rabbi. Yes. Is it not true that secular law has, has a lot of derivatives of the tongue? Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Yeah. When, when they were, secular, U.S. law is based on British common law. British common law is based on, yeah, it all goes, a lot of it goes back to Talmudic ethos. So yeah, it makes sense. In other words, what you're trying to say, Morris, I'll just say it bluntly, is they got it from us, which is fine. <laughs> they got, let's put it this way, they got, the good, they got the good stuff from us. The other stuff they made up. All right, now I want to tell you a Hebrew term. Why? Because I'm, I'm in a giving mood. So, and you should know, if you were studying in yeshiva, Right? Like that yeshiva student who got dragged on the train? Not dragged. Who got, yeah, got dragged after he got off the train? So here's, here's the phrase. Ham, it's going to sound like a blessing over bread, but it's not. Hamotzi michavero olav haraya. Not hamotzi lechem in aretz. That's what you say over bread. Hamotzi michavero olav haraya. Hamotzi michavero. If you want to pull it out of the possession of your friend, of the other, if you want, if you want to assume possession over something that someone else has, a love haraya, then the, then the burden of proof is on you. You want to pull it away from him, you provide the evidence. Otherwise, it's staying with that guy. Now, I talked before about the philosophical underpinnings of this. And I gave you three ideas of why we say possession nine-tenths of the law. But I want to share something else that's going to be absolutely critical to this. Why do we say possession is nine-tenths of the law? Uh, pragmatic reasons, right? Utilitarian reasons. We don't want to disrupt. Uh, we, don't, we don't want to cause havoc in society of having to, to furnish proof every time somebody shouts at you. Okay, fine. Good. But the whole notion, the, whole, the very idea that possession is nine-tenths of the law really only makes sense when possession is meaningful. And I'm going to say that one more time. Possession is nine-tenths of the law only makes sense when that possession grants some sense of authenticity or validity to that argument that it belongs to the possessor. But in some cases, the fact that someone is a possessor means nothing. In other words, what we're about to talk about are the exceptions to the rule in Jewish law. Jewish law does not agree that across the board, possession is nine-tenths of the law. There are some extremely important exceptions. And to understand the exceptions, I would like to ask you the following question. Imagine. Imagine, if you will, that Ruvain, we'll call him Ruvain. That's like in Talmudic lingo, you just... 
start with the, with the first of the 12 tribes, and you, you add as many names as you need. Reuven. Reuven has a house in Atlanta. Reuven also has a house in Florida. And in the winter, no, that's a bad, that's, let me give a better example. Reuven owns a house in New York, or in Buffalo, or in Montreal, or in Pittsburgh, or in Chicago. There you go, right? Any, any of the cold cities. We got, we got, we got everybody in, I think. And, uh, and he also owns a home in Florida, right? And in the winter, he spends his winter months in Florida. Where in Florida? Boca. Of course, Boca. That's where everybody is. Now, what happens is um, every year, Ruvain heads back home um, after Passover. So let's say in May. Ruvain heads home in May, okay? May 1st, Ruvain heads home to New York, Buffalo, Montreal, Chicago, up north. And he comes to his house, and he notices there's a light on. And he notices that there's a, uh, a car parked in the driveway. And he notices that there are people through the window. He sees people through the window. And he opens up the front door, and there are people there. Interesting. I thought it was my house, says Ruvain. Like, Ruvain says, what are you doing? Get out of my house. And they say to him, your house? It's our house. He says, what do you mean? What do you mean it's, uh, it, it's your house? It's my house. I have the deed to the house. And they, well, yeah, maybe we'll have to give an example without a deed, because otherwise it's going to be a little, a little bit too easy. Um, but they say, what do you mean? Don't you remember you sold it to us? <laughs> All right. So now they don't have proof, but they are the possessors, because they've been in the house for a few months. Right? Do you agree that possession is nine-tenths of the law? Oh, everyone's, okay, one second. Time out. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. There's, there's a way that we do this, and we do it with a poll. All right, do you think possession is nine-tenths of the law should apply to real estate when there is a known prior possessor? Again, we know that there's a prior possessor, that would be Ruvain, and now Shimon, let's call him Shimon, is in the house, and he is the possessor. Should it apply to real estate when there is a known Prior possessor. All right. So that's the question. Shimon is a squatter, not a possessor. All right. He's a squatter. Call, call him a squatter. It's okay. He's, he's squatting in the house, a.k.a. possessing it. Right? And he's claiming it's his. It's his. He bought it. He says, uh, you, you gifted it to me before you went to Florida. You were feeling generous, and you gave it to me, and now I have it, and now you want it back. You know, you can't, you can't do that. It's my house. I, I'm living in it, and, and he is the possessor. And we know possess, possession nine-tenths of the law. So, okay, look, I'm not going to wait for everyone to, to weigh in. It looks like a landslide. Pretty much everyone's saying no. We don't apply possession nine-tenths of the law. We kick out Shimon. Some of you wrote it depends. Let's actually schmooze about that for a second. Um, why do you think we do not say, oh, ooh, we have our lone dissenting opinion. Okay, good, fine. All right, so at least, at least we got some, uh, uh, a little variance over here. All right, uh, my friends, why do you believe that we don't apply, that we should not apply possession nine-tenths of the law. Jump in. I'm mute and jump in. Because real estate is title. Okay. Tell me more. And there are, and there are mechanics. There, there, there are formal ways of transferring the title. So you're saying there's proof and evidence. Good. I, let's go back 200 years. And if that doesn't work, let's go back 400 years. And if that doesn't work, let's go back 600 years. What, whatever, whatever era pre-title. Yeah, whatever era we can find pre-title. And let's say the scenario unfolds in an era before documentation. 
before this very strict legal documentation was mandated and their laws and taxes and all this stuff. Right? Imagine if you will, that's, that's why I, I, I realized as I was giving you the scenario of Atlanta, uh, of, of, of Florida and whatever, I realized that I was going to get caught up in this. But either way, I mean, it's, it's too late. But, but imagine if we, we turn back time. Yeah? And imagine the same scenario uh, manifested itself where we, we know that Ruvain lives in this house. We know that he lives on this estate, but he's been gone for a while. And now someone else is living there. Ruvain comes back and says, it's mine. But the one who's there says, you gave it to me, or you sold it to me, you gifted it, whatever it is. So what do we do? And they both come to court. What do we do? The possessor, the current possessor, is the second guy, Shimon. But we know Reuven used to live there. But we don't know now in the interim what happened. So again, aside from the, aside from the legal title, because that's a, already a modern invention, if you will. Aside from legal title, why would we perhaps not say possession of nine-tenths of the law when it comes to real estate? Why would we not apply it to real estate? I need a, logic, a logical reason for this. You, you can't give away your inheritance? I mean, is this in Israel? No, 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 no. No, nothing to do with Israel. No. They have a legal document that the guy owns the property. Forget legal documents. Let's say there's no legal documents. A time before legal documents. No legal documents. There's no proof. There's no evidence. We just know anecdotally that Reuven's been living there for 50 years. He went away for six months, and he comes back, and someone else is living there. Um, or even, let's say, he's gone for a year, and now someone else is living there. And he says, what do you, he says, get out of my house, Right? And, uh, and, and the other guy says, you gave it to me. So We have no proof. There's no evidence. There's no documentation. Nothing. So what do we do? Why, why would we not say possession nine-tenths of the law? What do you guys think? Witnesses? There's no, there's no proof. There's nothing. We have nothing in this case. No witnesses, no proof, no documents, nothing. We, we have, no, we have no, uh, no evidence. Why would we not? Somebody give me a logical argument why we would not say possession nine-tenths of the law. Typically, we say possession nine-tenths of the law. But in this case, I, there was a lot of hesitation to say that. Why? Let me share with you an idea. Um, that would give us squatter rights. Okay, fine. Let me give you another, a, a way, a way to, to frame this as an argument. In other words, as, a, as, a, as an argument. And that is that when somebody, when a homeowner or a property owner checks out of town for a while, or let's say this owner, this, this, the, the owner owns a lot of fields and land, and he's not living on all the properties, right? It's fairly easy for someone to move in. Are you with me on this? It's fairly easy for somebody just to set up shop and be a squatter. And so it doesn't make sense to grant this, the, that person the same rights in a typical, in a typical case where we say possession is nine-tenths of the law. In other words, possession is nine-tenths of the law is a privilege that we grant only in situations that are warranted. Does that make sense what I'm saying? When we say possession is nine-tenths of the law, it's a legal construct that the court gives to the person in possession when it deems that person to be worthy, when it deems likely that possession means something. But in a case where a person was out of town and someone else now magically appears, we don't say, oh, if you're there, then that must mean it's yours. We look at you suspiciously and we say, are you kidding me? Of course you jumped in because the guy wasn't there for a while. It was easier for you to move right in. Yes? Does that make sense? It could also maybe be the concept of abandonment. So that's why, you know, it depends. What, explain the concept of abandonment. Explain what abandonment. you're saying. Abandonment. Let's say, like, the fields are not tended. Yeah, okay, fields are not tended. Okay. 
Okay. I mean, I mean, that's why when squatters arrive, right, because they're a baby, something is like abandoned, not maintained. Right, okay. Bye-bye. Yeah. So I'm saying that could be the depends circumstance. So maybe the person taking it over is actually doing a service. Okay, good. Okay, yeah. good, good, good. We're going to get maybe a little bit on that. Yeah, Mars? You know, when you revert back to the Talmud, and in the Talmud, at the courts, they always say, show me the proof. Show me that in itself. The fellow that owns that particular asset can show him the proof. The other people can't. So that reverts back to what the original premise that we said. I hear you. I hear you. Joe. Let's let's say the original owner doesn't have proof, but there's anecdotal evidence that that family's been living there for 50 years or 100 years, right? And now they've been gone for a year, and other people are moving. There, other people have been living there, and yeah. now let's didn't give the that happen? Didn't that happen after World War II? When Jews came back from the concentration camps and people were living in their homes? Right. Yeah. Yes, it did. And they didn't give them back. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, look, look, what I, so I, I want to leave. What yeah. happens an example, which you just gave, of a fellow that comes back and somebody's living in his condo, and he says, oh, look, I'll live with you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you go. Then everyone's happy. But look, it's a, it's a, you, the question about wartime and, and what happened, you know, in World War II, I, I want to leave that aside because that's a that's a stickier question. That's a that's that's. I, I want to share this insight because it's very important. If we want to understand what Jewish law says about this, what I'm about to say is very important. It's a critical piece. Jewish law, Talmudic law, maintains that possession is nine tenths of the law. So the one in possession is considered to be the presumptive owner of that thing unless the other person furnishes proof. However, there's a major exception. And one major exception is when it comes to real estate, as most of you accurately sensed. When it comes to real estate, i.e. non-movable property, property that is not transient by nature, property that's real, real estate, right? Land, a house, etc. Real property, real estate, the Talmud maintains, does not run by the possession of nine-tenths of the law. If we know that someone lived there, if we know that someone owned that house, and suddenly someone else is living there, they cannot say possession of nine-tenths of the law because it's too easy to move in when someone goes on vacation. It's too easy to move in when somebody owns multiple properties. It's too easy to do that and then just take possession. Thus, the Talmud has another mechanism. Listen to this. We're going to read another text. Follow the logic here. It is powerful. Text number two. A I'm going to read this. A presumptive title to houses is conferred by three years of unchallenged possession from day to day. In other words, what the Talmud is saying is, if the, let's just call him the squatter or the possessor, the current possessor, if that person is living there for three years unchallenged and the, the original owner knows of it and doesn't challenge it, at that point we say you don't even need the title. It's a presumptive title. You don't need documentation. A presumptive title is conferred after three years, not after six months, 
Not after, not after six months where the guy doesn't even know about it. Not after six months where the guy does know about it. Not after one or two years. After three years, day to day. In other words, it has to be at least three years where the previous owner saw that person in the house, didn't say anything, didn't challenge it, didn't contest it. Then we say, well, clearly, everything's cool. And that's the new owner of the property. Otherwise, see you later, alligator. You're out. Possession is nine-tenths of the law? No, it's not. Not with real estate. Again, why? Because it's way too easy to just drop in on someone else's property while they're away and say, I got possession, na-na-na-na-na. We can't do possession nine-tenths of the law when it comes to real estate because it's sitting there. Are you with me? When it comes to property, to get it, you have to break in and steal it. That's a little bit more complicated. When you're dealing with, and this is before security cameras and before right ring and before Arlo and before Simply Safe and before barbed wire and before you know all uh, ADT and all that stuff. This is before security cameras, right? Before security systems, it was very easy to just shimmy on in and sit on someone else's property. So for the court to say, well, if you're in possession, it must be yours, would be ludicrous. Correct? That would be very, very reckless to say such a thing. Therefore, Jewish law does not say that. If someone else is in, someone, in possession of someone, if we, know, if we know that Ruvain lived there, and now Shimon is claiming that it's his, but has no proof, but is living there, we do not say possession not against the law. We say, Shimon, pack your bags, get out. Unless, unless Ruvain knew about Shimon living there, for three years and didn't say a peep. If he didn't say anything for three years, then it's a presumptive title that's conferred to the new guy, i.e. Shimon. But again, the logic, and I know I'm saying this again, I'm with you on how many times I'm repeating this, but the logic is critical. The logic is because real estate is a sitting duck. It's out there. Anyone can just move in and plant their flag. I got it. It's sitting there. It's open. It's ready to go. It's ready to access. You can't give possession, nine-tenths of the law, to real estate that's just sitting there. Yeah? Yes? Say it again? What does civil law say? We'll get, uh, I don't know. There's this idea. I, I, it's, there, there, are, there are similarities in civil law, but each state also has its own thing. It's a little bit complicated when it gets to civil law. But I want to focus on the, on the Jewish nuance of this. Now, so what we see here is a difference between what we call in Talmudic terminology movable property, and I'll give you more halachic terms. There's karka. Karka means land or real estate. And metaltalin. Metaltalin is movable property or um, mobile property or personal property, i.e. not real estate. So when it comes to personal property, like a garment, like the Louis Vuitton cashmere wrap uh, scarf situation. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. If you have it, it's, I'm sure it's yours. I, we know someone else used to have it. All right, but someone else has it. So it's probably theirs. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. When it comes to real estate, nope. We don't give, we don't give the possessor the nine-tenths of the law business until three years have passed. Three years that the other guy knew about it. If he didn't know about it, it doesn't count. The clock doesn't start ticking until he knows about it, and he still doesn't say anything. All right, now let's move on to the next text, because here it gets interesting. Text number three. All right, again, it's a puzzle, step by step. All right, here we go. Text number three. The, um, the Rashbam. 
The Rashbam says the following. With regard to mobile property, mobile property means everything other than real estate. The law is as follows. We presume that because the object is in his possession, whoever that his is, he must have bought it from the original owner as people don't ordinarily break into houses to steal someone else's property. In other words, if we know that this cashmere wrap thing used to belong to Reuven and now Shimon is wearing it, we say, you know what? It's probably Shimon's. He probably bought it off him or he probably gave it to him. Why? Because people don't usually break into people's houses to steal stuff. But squatting... Squatting happens all the time. I, or maybe back then it happened all the time. Because land is a sitting duck. It's just out there. So again, the divide in halacha is between, on the one side, land and everything else. When it comes to land, nine-tenths we don't apply. Nine-tenths. Possession means nothing. You could have just moved in, 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 in when the guy was out of town. And now it's yours because possession? Get out of here with your possession. Right? Show me the proof or get out. So that's what we say with land, unless it's three years. But when it comes to other property, if you have it, we say possession is nine-tenths of the law, and the other guy has to bring the proof. So that's the divide. But here's where it gets even more complicated, uh, or even more interesting. This is now step three. Okay, next step. What about certain cases that are a hybrid, logically, between land and movable property. I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to give you an example. Um, let me see if I have it as a poll question. Give me a second here quickly. Um, beautiful. Here we go. Take a look at the poll question. Is a trash can, okay, more like real estate or like personal property? Again, again, understand my question. Don't answer until you understand my question. Let me explain it. Is a trash can, okay, listen to the question. Is a trash can more like real estate or like personal property? In other words, do we grant it the, ninth, the possession is nine-tenths like personal property, or do we say it's like real estate that possession is nine-tenths uh, of the law? Okay? Is a trash can. What about a cat? Is a cat, right, question number two, is a cat more like real estate or like personal property? I feel like the question may not be so clear, but I'm still going to keep it up because I still want you guys to think about this. What about a trash can? What about a cat? Is a trash can like land or is it like movable property? Is a cat more like real estate or like personal property? Which one? Which one is it? Real estate or personal property? Trash can and cat. All right. Again, I'm going to explain this question more as we get through, as we get past the, uh, the, poll, phrase, the poll phase. But I want to just get a sense of how you guys are thinking about this. Okay. We have a lot of answers that came in. I feel like I'm going to stop the poll. The majority of you are saying that... It is more like uh, personal property than real estate. Let's discuss this for a second. To understand this, to really understand this, we really need to understand what, I, what I've been trying to like drill in before, which is what is the difference between real estate and personal property, right? The whole, the whole strength of possession, nine-tenths of the law, we only grant when having that possession is valuable or means something. If it's easy possession, then we don't give you possession nine-tenths of the law. Are you with me on what I just said? Yeah. 
If it was able to be easily obtained, then the fact that you have it means nothing. Yes? A trash can. Yeah? A trash can. It's your trash, Ruben's trash can. It has your address on it. But now it's in somebody else's yard. And you're like, bro, that's my, you got my trash can. And they're like, no, you, you, you gave us a gift. You gave us the trash can. You're like, what do you mean we gave you the trash you to, can? You have to qualify that, Rabbi. You have to qualify whether that trash can is movable or it's in the ground. It's, okay, I, I, listen, I, the fact that I didn't write the question well, is, uh, that's, that's abundantly clear to me, right? That I was able to tell right away. Um, but, uh, so now I'm explaining the question. Imagine, yeah, you have a trash can. And imagine you live at um, this address here, 730 Ponce de Leon Place. Right, so the, the, the thing says 730, spray painted on the thing. Okay, 730. And now this trash can that says 730 is next door at 734. And so the owners of 730 go to the 734 people and knock on the door and say, I think you have our trash can. And they say, nope, don't you remember? You gave us a gift, an extra trash can. You're like, what are you talking about? I did not give you a gift. That's, you literally stole our trash can. And they're like, no, you gave it to us. Where's your proof? I don't have proof. I'm in possession. And now you go to court. And the court says, all right, whose trash can is it? The great trash can debate of 2022. And one guy says, Ruvain says, who lives at 730 says it's 730s. And the other guy says, nope, you gave it to us. And we have it. Because the Shimon, the second guy, is literally wheeling in the trash can because he's got it. Possession, nine-tenths of the law, what do you say? Possession? Yeah? Why not? Somebody jump in and tell me why possession is not nine-tenths of the law here. It was stolen. How do you know? How do you know? Oh. He's claimed... Ownership is clear. Huh? Ownership is clear. Previous ownership is clear. How do you know that the, that the possession is not nine-tenths of the law? It says 730 on it. That's, why, that's how we know who originally owned it. How do we know that the guy didn't give it to him as a gift? How do we know? Well, if he just goes and gets it, we know it wasn't a gift. But how do we know that he just went and got it? got it? That's the question. He's claiming that it was a gift. Are you guys with me on the case? Yeah. So we don't know. It's the same thing like someone coming in with one garment. He's so why don't we say possession is nine-tenths of the law? Yeah. Why not? I don't know. The answer is because it's like real estate. One second. Time out. The answer, the answer is because it's like real estate. It was easy to grab off the street. That's why, because it was easy to grab. The fact that you have possession of it doesn't mean anything because it was too easy to grab. Are you with me on what I just said? In other words, the only time in Jewish law, it's very important, the only time in Jewish law that we say possession is nine-tenths of the law in the face of a known prior owner is where it would have been difficult for the second party to have obtained that item which makes his possession of it meaningful, which is why we don't confer that status to real estate. And it's why we don't confer the status to a trash can. What about a cat? Let's talk about a cat. Somebody has a cat. They're photographed on Instagram with a cat. Bo, we know what the cat, well, we're not gonna mention any specific names, right? We know the cat. We know who the cat, we know who the cat's owner is. One day, the cat is, is the cat arrived, the cat's now someone else's house. And, 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 the, and now is on Instagram and someone else's Instagram account. And, and the first owner says, 
The, the, the original owner of the cat says, uh, you have my cat. You have my cat. And the other one says, no, you gave it to me. He says, no, I didn't. There's no proof. But we know that the cat is for sure in possession of Mr. Number Two, of, of the owner number two. So how do we, whose cat is it? Whose cat is it? Do we say in the possession? Yeah. Do we the say? It's going to run to the owner. Let's say it doesn't. Let's say it doesn't, right? We can't throw curveballs, right? Let's say, let's say it doesn't, right? So there's no evidence. There's no witnesses. There's no documents. There's no receipts. You have one cat and two people vying for the cat, one who we know was the owner, that, that's clear, and one who claims to be the current owner and who, has, who is in possession of the cat. Do we say, simple question, possession is nine-tenths of the law? Again, imagine a scenario. You are the judge. You be the judge. Forget me. You be the judge. You're sitting there you're behind the bench. You have a gavel. You have a robe. You have the whole, you're all decked out. Two people walk into court. Ruvain and Shimon. Ruvain says, Shimon's holding a cat. Ruvain says, you're like, what's the, what's the problem? Ruvain says, that's my cat. And, it's too and, easy for the cat to run away. One second, one second. And Shimon says, it was your cat. It's now my cat. And, and, and the judge says, so tell me what happened. Ruvain says, it's my cat. And my cat, my, you know, and, and Shimon says, no, you gave it to me. And that's how I have it. So, and there's no evidence and there's no proof, but we do know, we, the, Ruvain furnishes proof that it was his at some point in time. It had been his. So how do we know what the deal is? Do we say possession not tends to the law? And Donna got it right. And Donna got it right. The reason why we do not say possession of nine-tenths of the law in this case, we rule against Shimon, and we return the cat to Ruvain, we pull it out from the hands of Shimon and give it back to Ruvain, is because the fact that Shimon has it means nothing. Nothing. There's no possession nine-tenths of the law because the cat probably ran away or the cat was walking outside and Shimon snatched it. If it's too easy to get, you don't also get Possession, the protection of possession, nine-tenths of the law. Does that make sense? We only give you possession being nine-tenths of the law where it would have been difficult for you to obtain possession legally. Uh, illegally, sorry. Where it would have been difficult to do so. If it's easy, then you don't get that. That's why real estate. It's the same logic as real estate. With real estate, you don't get possession, nine-tenths. You, you squat and now it's yours? How easy is that? We don't give you that. After three years, we give that to you. After three years of uncontested possession, then we give you that. Then we give you that right possession nine tenths of the law. Then we give you the presumptive title. But before that, you're not. You can't just squat and take it. You can't just grab someone's can. You can't just wheel away someone's garbage can. But how did you get their scarf? How'd you get their scarf? Now the claim has to be breaking and entering. Oh, now it's complicated. Now it's complicated. Now, now you want the court to expect that this guy secretly broke into your house stole your cashmere scarf, and now is wearing it, the court's going to be like, do you have proof of a break-in? No. So this guy's so good, he broke in and no one noticed. Uh-huh. But he claims you gave it to him. All right, we're going to leave it with him. You with me on the distinction? Yes? Three cases. Yeah, yes, I'm, getting, I'm, not, I'm not getting a solid read on this, but it is what it is. I, I told you at the beginning, you have to help cup. And I know it's late, but, but it's, this is Talmud. You have three cases. Three cases. The typical case and the exceptions. The typical case is possession. The typical law rule is possession is nine-tenths of the law with the exception of where that's too easy, where possession was too easy. If you have a field that's sitting out there in the open and someone squats on it, 
we don't give that to you until three years. If it's an animal that moves around and is outside and now someone else has possession of it, we do not give them possession of the law. If it's a trash can that's sitting outside on the curb and someone could easily grab it, we do not give you possession of the law because again, it's too easy to do so. But don't take my word for it. Let's look at this clearly in black and white in Jewish law. Follow with me on this. Follow with me. Um, from the Talmud, text 4a. A possessor. That means the one in possession. Cannot claim ownership to living creatures. Like a cat. Said Rabbah, what Reish Lakish meant is that the possessor cannot claim ownership of living creatures immediately, as the case is with other mobile property, but he can claim ownership after three years of possession, as the case with regard to land. And I forgot to mention this, but yes, if the other guy posts on Instagram for three years, the new, the new, the, 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 the possessor of the cat, the new possessor, Shimon, for three years about pictures of this cat and Ruvain is liking the pictures and he sees it, then Ruvain cannot come after three years and say, oh, he stole my cat. That, that's not going to work because he had three years to file that claim. If for three years you were quiet, you know what that means? That means that there's no, there's no issue here. But if it's before three years, then you can claim that that cat was stolen and the fact that the new guy has possession of the cat means nothing because cats move around. Now, where do we see this, this logical piece? That's the next text, text 4a, 4b. The Rashbam says, sheep or any other living creature which walks in the roads or in the markets, like cats also, or dogs, or sheep, or whatever it is, they cannot be claimed by a possessor because the animal could have walked into the possessor's property. Or the possessor could have taken it while it was outside and brought it into their property. In other words, it's too easy to grab. It's too easy to have been moved from, one, from the possession of one to the other, which means that the, 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 the fact that it's a possession of the new party doesn't grant it valid legal weight. And thus, we are left with a, the following table of rules. So let's read this together, three rules. All right, summary of rules regarding ownership of property that has changed hands when there's no clear proof of ownership. Those, that's the case that we're talking about here. So rule number one, the current possessor is assumed to be the owner of movable property. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. So if it's a cashmere, Louis Vuitton, scarf, wrap, whatever it is, then that's it. You, we, the current possessor is assumed to be the owner. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. That's the basic rule. The current possessor is assumed to be the owner of non-movable property, that's real estate, after three years to pass without protest. So it takes three years for real estate, and the current possessor is assumed to be the owner of livestock or other animals after three years to pass without protest, again, after three years. So what we're left with, and I don't actually like the way that that's phrased, I think I phrased it maybe more complicated, but I think better, more accurately, is that halacha, Jewish law, only gives you the benefit of the doubt when it comes to possession being nine tenths of the law, when it would have been very difficult for you to have possession otherwise. When it would have required stealthily breaking into someone else's home to steal the thing and to now have it, when that's what's required, we say, you know what, if he has it, he probably is not like, oh, it's probably not like Ocean's Eleven. It's pro he probably just bought it or he gifted it and now the guy wants to go back on it, renege on it, so we're gonna leave it where it is. But in a case, where it's very easy, where it's very easy to get, because it's outside anyway, and now, the, and now somebody has it, it's sitting outside, whether it's land, or a garbage can, 
or an animal, if it's outside and easily obtainable and now someone else has it, we say to them, nice try, give it back. Make sense? Yes, sort of. Huh? Rabbi. Yes. How do you deal with an adopted child if, in fact, parents come back and try to reclaim that child? Okay, so that would, that's a complicated case. Um, it's, that's not a case of, see, in that case, it's clear. You're saying in a case of adoptive, adoptive, uh, adoption where the birth parents are saying that this child was abducted and not abdo- uh, adopted? That, that's correct. That's, in other words, they're trying to take possession of the child, whether the child's wow. been with them a long time. Wow, that's, that's an interesting question. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I have to think about it. So the case, you're asking a case where the, the, the new family is claiming they adopted this child. The, right. the other family is saying our child went missing, our child is abducted. Uh, I would say, man, is it more like the... Le- <sighs> I didn't mean to give you a headache. No, I, mean, I don't have a headache. It's, it's just I, I feel like there's other factors when it comes to this situation, but I... I I don't know. I can't, I can't wrap my head around all the contours of this, but I feel like it's a good question and I want to think about it more, but maybe I'll think about it after the class um, when, when I have a little bit of, uh, of, of brain space. Um, well, there's, well, there's one thing that you could consider is that it was, if it was publicized that the, that the parents were looking for their, for their child. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Then, 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 we, would have, then we would know that there was a, you know, that there was a, a kidnapping. It's, right, yeah, it's right. But the, case, the question would be if there was nothing... Yeah, it's, it's, and, maybe, and maybe that's what it is. Maybe if, if they knew about this new family having this child and they didn't say anything for three years and now they want to say something, well, then that, that claim is suspect. But if I, let's, let's leave that aside. I want to make sure that, because I feel like that's, now, that's next level, which, which is good. But let's, I, let's have, Adina Malka, let, let's stick with questions on what we've said thus far. We have three scenarios. Standard everyday property, Right, standard property, a cell phone, or this, that, or the other. Um, then you have real estate, and then you have property that's kind of a hybrid between movable property and real estate. It's movable property because it's not real estate, but it's real, like real estate because, like real estate, it's easily squattable, if you will. It's easily possessed by someone else. Okay, makes sense? Yes? Questions of clarification? No? Okay. By the way, if someone goes to a bar and they leave their phone on the, uh, on the counter, on the bar, you know, counter, and then they go to the bathroom and they come back and it's gone. And they track the phone and they find it in someone's possession. And they call the cops. And the cops come and they say, hey, you have this guy's phone. And the guy says, yeah, of course, because he gave it to me. We had a bet and I won the bet and he gave it to me. What do you do? What do you do? What does the law say? Got to give it back to the owner. Got to give it back. Why? Because possession is not nine-tenths of the law. Possession is not nine-tenths of the law. We don't, the fact that you now have it doesn't mean you have a claim because the guy left it on the bar counter. The fact that, that the other party has it means nothing. 
Now you have to go based on evidence. And what evidence do you have? That it belonged to this guy. Right? The new party doesn't have any claim. The possession doesn't mean anything. So you understand what I'm saying? Who has the burden of proof here? Typically we say possession, nine tenths of the law, which means the other guy has the burner proof. But in this case, the guy who has it has the burner proof. Why? Because the fact that he has it doesn't mean anything because we're sitting on the bar. The mobile. fact that mobile. It mo uh, it's not only mobile, but it's mobile mobile, right? It's literally a mobile mobile phone that is now too easy to obtain and thus the possession thereof doesn't grant any valid legal authenticity to the claim of, well, it's mine. Um, again, the exception not the exception. I, I mean, it's really the rule. All these are the exception. The rule would be, let's say somebody has, go to my go-to case, a Tiffany lamp. Yeah? Somebody has a Tiffany lamp in their house, and uh, somebody comes over and says, oh, that's my lamp. That's my, it went missing. That's my lamp. That's 100% my lamp. I, know I can tell you exactly how it was. Uh, I can even furnish a receipt that I bought the lamp. And the other guy says, yes, it was your lamp but you sold it to me. I paid cash. We didn't drop a receipt. Who draws up a receipt? You, you make a deal with a friend. You, who's who, a receipt? You're doing a receipt with, with witnesses, documentation. I gave you 50 bucks for it. Yeah, yard sale. When was the last time you got a receipt at, the, at a yard sale? Yeah, I bought, I bought it at a yard sale. You sold me the lamp and now you want it back? What would the court say? Possession is nine-tenths of the law. The, the, the current possessor of the lamp doesn't have to furnish evidence. We're not going to pull it out of his house. That would be the ultimate, the ultimate Jedi move at a yard sale. Can you imagine that? This is the ultimate move. You do a yard sale, yeah, no receipts, and then you go to everyone's house and claim it back, yeah? Oh, you stole it, you stole it, you stole it. You know what the court's going to say? You're the liar. Everyone stole it from you. Everyone stole it. Everyone stole it. No, possession, nine-tenths of the law. You furnish proof that they stole it. You claim that it's stolen, you furnish proof. That's a normal item that sits in your house. Yeah, but a garbage can, a cat, a cell phone that's mobile, a mobile, mobile phone. These are things that when the other guy has possession, we say, give it back. Give it back, unless you can prove that you bought it. Give it back. Are you with me on the distinction? Yes? Rabbi, yeah. I'm going to go into how three years was determined, what the basis of the three years. We're not going to get into that tonight. We're not going to get into that tonight. The, 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 there is the notion in halacha and Jewish law, as I say, we're not going to get into it, and now I'm explaining it. There is a notion of three times as chazaka. In, um, in, in Jewish law, there is this idea that three times, or threes, mean chazaka, means um, assumption of strength. So when it comes to a question of disputed land, or land that, that ultimately ends up in, dis, in, in, dispute, in, in a dispute, we say, if you knew about it, and you had three years, you had three full years to deal with the issue, and you didn't, that means it's a non-issue. So why three? Because three grants something validity. So why didn't they say three days, too short? Three months, also too short. Three years, that sounded about right. I, 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 but I'm sure it's a more complicated thing, but three in general is the notion of a chazak, which means a, an, a, a, three establishes a fact, in this case, is three years. Now, I want to, it's called, by the way, you want to hear, hear uh, phrases? It's called cheskas Gimel Shanim. It's the chazaka of the assumption and presumption of three years. Yes, Mark. What about a thousand dollar bill? Yeah. You wrote your name on it. Yeah. Okay, good. Somebody has it. You said that was, that was mine. Great question. 
Great question. What was the question? Yeah, what if you have, let's say a $100 bill. Let's say you have a $100 bill, and you wrote your name on it, and now someone else has it. And you're like, that's my bill. It has my name on it. I don't, I don't think you can claim it back because money is meant to be spent, and the assumption is cats are not meant to be traded, garbage cans aren't meant to be swapped, but money is meant to be spent, which means it's the exception to the exception, right? The exception was where something is out there, but the exception to something out there is when it's so out there that it's supposed to be out there and it's supposed to be transferred, and thus the new possessor does have nine-tenths of the law. So it's a very good question, and I think it reversed, reversed jinxed the jinx, if you will. It reversed exception the exception. All right. And now that we're all confused, see, you thought you were going to walk in, easy class, no big deal. And we, went, we took the brains and we went, we, we did it with the old Talmudic squeeze. This is what happens when you study Talmud. You get fetched. You, we fetch your brain a little bit. Squeeze your brain. This is why Talmud study sharpens the mind. You got a health cup. I know some of you have studied Talmud with me or with others before. I'm looking around. I, 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 I know some Talmudists here in other courses, other contexts. It's, it's a great workout. It's a great work. If you want to stay sharp in life, in general, want to keep your mind sharp, nothing like some Talmud study. Trust me, nothing like Talmud study. Now, I want to bring up a case. This is a real case that came before a Betin, a Jewish court of law in, in Israel. You ready? The case of the stolen bike. The case of the stolen bike. Here we go. Buckle up. This is bound to be a wild ride. Oh, sorry, case of the missing bike. Whoops. Okay, case number two. David Salamani claims that he saw Josh Edry steal his new racing bike. Edry acknowledges he took the bike from the bike rack outside Salamani's apartment building, but he insists the bike was rightfully his. Edry claims that the seller who sold the bike to Salamani was a crook because Edry had already paid the seller sometime earlier for the same bike. There are no witnesses that can verify that Edry took the bike, nor any witnesses who have actually seen the bike in Edry's possession. But Edry freely admits that he took it from the street outside Mr. Soleimani's house. So now the question is, you be the judge. Let me restate the case in my own words. Soleimani and Edry, Soleimani has a bike. It's in his possession. It's outside his house. Edry takes the bike. Edry admits that he took the bike. But he says it's his. Why? Because he paid the seller for that bike. The seller was a Ghanif. The seller was a thief. He sold it twice. The old classic, I'll sell it twice. And Edry says, I was the first guy to buy it. I paid the money first. It's my bike. It's my bike. I'm going to keep it. I got it. This is repo. This is bike repo. I'm, I got that bike. So now you be the judge. Now you be the judge. Okay, let me pull up this poll question. All right, here we go. You be the judge. Who should be awarded the bike? If you are the judge, who should be awarded the bike? Salamani or Edry? Remember, Salamani had the bike outside his house, in his bike rack, outside his, his apartment. Edry took it. Edry admits to taking it. Edry claims that it was his because he had paid for it before. Who do you think should get the bike? Wow. It's a clean sweep so far. Can you guys see all the results or just see yours? How does it work? 
Really? Oh, you don't see anyone? Oh, wow. Oh, it's so unbiased. So every time I tell you the way it is, I'm influencing. Oh, I'm not going to influence anything. Garnished. No, you guys are on your own. That's it. All right. Another five seconds. Four, three, two, one. We have a, an, a, a, a landslide. Most of you, by a vast majority, believed that Soleimani should, should be awarded the bike. Very few of you believe that Edry should be awarded the bike. And now let's discuss this for a moment. And I want to ask you a question. Who is, it's just a comprehension question, who is the current, pos current possessor of the bike? Who has the bike right now? Edry. Edry. So our class, it revolves around a center principle on the axis. What is the axis of which this whole class revolves? It is possession is nine-tenths of the law. And the question is, when do we apply it? When do we not apply it? So Edry is now the possessor of the bike. Do we say possession is nine-tenths of the law? Do we say that? No. Why not? It's too, it's too easy. Uh, uh, why is it too easy? It's a bike. It's so beautiful. Where, where is it kept? Where is the bike kept? Outside. Yeah. Outside? Outside. The fact that he possesses it, yeah, doesn't mean, oh, it must be his. The fact that he possesses it means he just grabbed it from the street. Like the trash can, like the cat. In other words, when something is too, like the cell phone at the bar. By the way, that cell phone at the bar? Anybody remember the scandal with, um, with, uh, with, with the iPhone 4 left at the bar? The prototype? You guys didn't follow that back in the day? Oof. Wow. Gizmodo, the website. Oh, guys, look that up. A classic case of, uh, of corporate uh, espionage. Anyway, back to our story. Apple, iPhone 4. Steve Jobs never forgave um, Gizmodo, the website. Back to our story. It doesn't matter. What I'm saying could be uh, foreign language. doesn't matter. Back to our story. The bike is sitting outside. Thus... The fact that Edry has it means nothing. There's no possession of the law unless it required some effort. <laughs> unless, unless, it, it, unless it sounds plausible that the fact that you have it grants you credence. But if it's too easy to obtain because it's sitting outside, then your possession means nothing. Plus, Mark said he took it illegally. How do we know he took it illegally? Witnesses. No, no witnesses. No witnesses. How do we know that he... Huh? He admits oh, it. he admits yeah. it. The problem is, the problem is, because he admitted it, now we believe him. Yeah, but you have to establish proof. Period. Because, but what I'm, I'm saying a plot twist, a massive plot twist, and I'm going to leave you with this plot twist. Because he admitted to stealing it, that actually bolsters his argument. Why? There's something in halacha called amigui. Amigui means, essentially, if a claimant in court makes a very weak claim, when they could have made a stronger claim, then we tend to believe them about the weaker claim because if they were lying, why didn't they say the better lie? Are you with me? I'll say that again. If somebody makes a claim in court that is a very weak sauce claim, and we're like, yeah, we don't believe you. You're lying. And then we're like, well, wait a second. If you're a liar, then you're a really bad liar because if you were lying anyway, why not say a good lie that we would actually believe you in? Are you with me on this? then we actually get, grant you the argument that you didn't say. Sorry, we grant you, we believe you in what you said because you could have said something stronger that we would have for sure believed you in. In this case, the rabbi, 
who is Rabbi Hoffman? Grossman, Rabbi Grossman. He argued in, in Israel, the rabbi who was presented this case argued that Edry, there were no witnesses that he took the bike, no witnesses that it's in his possession. Edry could have, theoretically, said what? What could Edry have said? It was mine all along. There are no witnesses that he took it or that he has it. What could he have said? Nothing. I don't have it. I don't have it. He could have said, I don't know what you're talking about. What bike? And then we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to, in, in Jewish law, you don't really do search. You, you don't really search somebody's house. So, so he could have said, I have no idea what you're talking about. The fact that he didn't say that, the fact that he freely admitted to taking the bike, but said that he paid for it, actually grants that argument, that claim, credence in a reverse way. Are you with me on this reverse psychology almost? The fact that he said something that is a weaker position when he could have taken a stronger position allows us to think, makes us tend to believe him in his weaker position. Because if he was lying, then why didn't he actually say the big lie that I don't even have it? So the fact that he said, I took it, I did take it, but I was the first purchaser of it and the other guy's the ganif, the other guy's the crook, maybe we do believe it. I'm going to leave you with that. That is the ultimate plot twist. That's called amigoi. Amigoi is, if you want to see the legal definition of amigoi from Rabbi Steinsatz of Blessed Memory, here's how he explains it. The word migoi literally means from the midst of or since and refers to an important legal argument used to support the claim of one of the parties in the dispute. If one of the litigants could have made a claim more advantageous to his cause than he actually did, we assume he was telling the truth. The migoi argument may be summarized in the following way. Since he could have made a better claim for had he wanted to lie, he would presumably have put forward a claim more advantageous to himself. We assume that he must be telling the truth. For he could say, what reason do I have to lie? And if I was lying, I would have said that other claim. I, I would have denied it outright. So he could have said, I don't have the bike. I, I didn't take the bike. Solomon says, you stole my bike. Edry comes to court and says, I didn't take your bike. There are no witnesses, no proof, no evidence. He could have denied it. And you know what? He goes home with the bike. I mean, with the bike at home. He goes home and that's it. The court can't do anything. The fact that he said, yes, I did steal the bike, but it was really mine because I paid for it first, etc. cetera, that, uh, that, that, that encourages us to actually believe him and buy his argument. That's a little plot twist at the end. Not everyone agrees with the application in this case. It's very complicated. This would take probably another 45 minutes to explain the two sides of whether we could apply it to the bike case, but we don't have time for that, so I'm just, I just want to do a little bit of a teaser just so you see the depth of Talmudic analysis and logic because what, what this comes down to today is very important. That is, the court doesn't know. We don't know. That's the, the, the truth of all these cases is we don't know. You're the judge. Right? You're the, you be the judge. That's what you signed up for. You're the judge. You don't know. You don't know whose bike it is. You don't know if the seller sold it to him first. You don't know. There's no proof. You don't know. You don't know whose cat it is. You don't know whose trash can it is. You don't know whose cell phone it is. You don't know whose land it is. You don't know whose governmental papers it is. You don't know. There's no proof. But what you do know is what you know. Who it initially belonged to. You know who is in possession of it now. You know a little bit about the circumstances, how much time has elapsed since, the since it's been in their possession, since the claim has been put forth, and you need to operate with your best sensibilities. Here's what Judaism says. I'm going to summarize it. Number one, typically, possession is nine-tenths of the law. 
So if two litigants come to court and one guy says, one guy's holding on to it, and the other guy's screaming, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, we say, do you have proof? If the guy furnishes proof that it once was theirs, but how do we know that you didn't give it away? And now you want it back? How do we know you didn't sell it at a garage sale and now you want it back? How do we know? So we're still going to keep it with that guy. But if it's land that's sitting outside and someone squats on it, get out of here. Someone takes a tr someone has a tr your tra someone has a trash can with another number on it, get out of here. Someone has a cat, come on. You have to prove that you bought it. Otherwise, it's going back. It was too easy to steal. It was too easy to take. What about a case where somebody makes a weak sauce claim, but they, if they were lying, they could have made a stronger claim? Then maybe we'll believe them with the weaker claim. That's how we ended the class. So, in summation, in summation, let me, let, let's conclude the class and then we'll take, because uh, it's late. I want to conclude it formally and then we'll take questions. So, in summation, what would Jewish law say about South Carolina? What would it say about the papers? Remember the case. We have this guy, Wilcox, who has the papers in his possession, the family for 140 years. The state is now saying it's ours. We don't know. We're, we, 2022, we have no idea. We don't know the chain of custody. We don't know the conversations. We don't know the deals that were made. We don't know the agreement. We have zero clue. But what we do know is that the papers have been in possession <coughs> of this family for 140 years. We do know the state is claiming it back or claiming that it's theirs. What Jewish law would likely say would likely say is, possession is nine-tenths of the law. But let me give you one more scenario. Disputed lawn chair furniture. Let's say two, two litigants come to court fighting over lawn chair furniture. You know those little plastic chairs? Yeah. So one guy says, it's mine. The other guy says, what are you talking about? It was ours, and that's what's gone one day, and now you have it. The guy says, I bought it from you, or you gave it to me. We're going to give that back, we're going to give that back to, the, to the original owner. If, we, if that original owner has proof that they once had it, we're going to give it back to them because too easy to snatch lawn chair furniture. My friends, this is a sampling, a taste of one piece, a taste of one piece of the Talmud. <coughs> Over 60 volumes of brilliance um, and so much wisdom, so much just fine arguments and wisdom and, and back and forth. It's the richness of Talmud. I promised you some mysticism, and I want to give you a little mysticism. Number one, possession is nine-tenths of the law. When in our inner struggle between good and evil, sometimes our evil inclination tries to get us to do wrong things. We should always counter internally to our evil inclination. I am inherently godly. I am a divine being. You have the burden of proof to show me otherwise. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. I am divine. You want to schlep me into, yeah, into the path of doom, right? You got to prove that I belong there. Otherwise, get out of here. I'm not going anywhere. But what if we've listened, perhaps, to the evil inclination, and now it claims we are in its possession, right? So then the claim is invalid again, as the soul is like real estate, and thus, it reverts back to its previous known status, which is a divine status. What about three years? Three years of presumptive possession. If you do a mitzvah three times, I mentioned three times as a chazaka, you do a mitzvah three times, then you will begin to enjoy it or at least appreciate it. Don't give up on a mitzvah. Don't give up on a good deed until you've tried it a few times, at least three. If three doesn't work, try it another three times. Keep on going until you appreciate it, right? Keep on doing it until... You take presumptive title of ownership over that good deed. 
All right. And um, we'll leave it at that. So some mystical considerations, how they study this, uh, these, these areas of Torah in heaven. There's a mystical application that speaks to our soul directly. All right. With this, we formally conclude lesson three. I want to explain. I want to quickly tease what lesson four is about. Lesson four next week, we talk about the emergence of ethics in Jewish law. When, how do we balance legal and ethical considerations in the law? And we'll speak specifically about the case of Bar Metzra, right? A first refusal when selling real estate. When you sell property, who has first dibs on the house? You're going to say the highest bidder. However, Jewish law has a bit of a different perspective and there's an unbelievable spiritual twist to this law. All coming up next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. You be the judge. Join me then. All right, let's open up to questions. Jump in. Mom, you had a question. Yeah, I had a question. So the, pre, the, pre, the, the, the thing with Edri and Soleimani, okay? And you said, well, Edri, you know, he told a weak lie. I mean, he told the weak, you know, he told the weak, he, he testified weakly. Right, he right. He said a bigger lie. I mean, right. if, he wanted, if he was lying. But, but Soleimani... Could have also, why did he pick on Edra? He could have said, um, you know, I mean, he did. See, yeah, but no, but one second. But Edry has the bike. The, it's, we, have to, we have to look at the, the whole picture here. The court, look, the court doesn't know what happened. The court just knows what's right in front of it. You're, you're, you're the judge. You're sitting there. Two people walk in. One guy has a bike. He's saying that he paid for that bike weeks before Soleimani had it. It's his bike. He, he doesn't know about this guy. He bought this bike. He never got delivery. He sees it on a rack, and he takes it. That's what he says. The court has no reason, doesn't know whether to believe that or not. The other guy says, I don't know what you're talking about. I bought the bike, and this guy stole it. Um, so he saw him steal it? Is that the thing? Soleimani says he saw him steal it. But, but our argument is that Edry could have denied it. I'm sorry, I said they comes into court and he's holding the bike. That would, no, that would take away the migui. The migui is that we don't know that he has the bike. So I misspoke, right? But so basically, Soleimani is claiming that it was stolen and Edry is claiming that he took it, but it was legal that he took it because it it's actually his. So that's the argument going on. So what it comes, wait, so let me just finish. So what it comes down to, what it comes down to is I mean, obviously, he said versus he said, but what we're, the migui is, right, that Edry could turn to him in court because there's no bike. I misspoke. There's no bike in court, right? He's not holding the bike. That, that would take away the migui. He could turn to Soleimani and said, um, I've never met you before, and I feel very triggered that you've brought me, you, you dragged me to court, um, that I stole your bike. I've never stolen your bike. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't, I don't, know, what bike, I don't know what bike you're referring to. Um, I would like to go home. And you, you, do you have any proof? Do you have any witnesses? Is there any testimony? Did anyone see me steal your bike or take your bike? No? Then I think I'm going to be leaving now. And the court will say, Shalom. Have a good day. Right? You're done. The but fact that... Someone, I don't know why... So, but, the, but the court... I don't know. But the court... Again, Ed, Soleimani is claiming from Edry. So this is how I'm going to modify my response. Soleimani wants something from Edry. Soleimani has to prove that Edry has his bike. And he didn't. If Edry voluntarily offers that he has that bike, then the argument can be made that we believe him on, on, on count of Migui. Remember, the question is not why did Soleimani say a weak lie. That's not the, because Soleimani is not the defendant. 
Edri's the defendant here, right? Edri's the one that is, that is being asked to deliver a bike back to Soleimani. And Edri could have said, I don't know what you're talking about. And we would say to Edri, we say to Soleimani, you have proof? No? Okay, so then Edri's go, go home. Have a, have a good life. The fact that Edri says, I did take the bike, however, it's really mine, now, now we tend to believe that. And now he has possession because he just claimed to have possession. Soleimani doesn't have possession. He's literally asking for a bike, so clearly he doesn't have possession. So if you combine all the factors that Edri now admits to having possession, he could have said a bigger lie. He claims that he bought it. At this point, maybe we would keep the bike with Edri. Not everyone agrees, by the way. Not everyone agrees. It's very contested. It's very complicated. Migui is a very complicated um, svara, a lo logical um, uh, inference. It's very, very, how you apply migui is very complicated because there are many exceptions, which is why it would be another 45 minutes of conversation, which we don't have. Yeah, Donna. But it seems by saying this lie, he's actually, he's, he's saying, he, He's showing that the true claim is, I mean, he, this true claim is against the bicycle's shop, not against... Exactly. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Obviously, uh, so let me clarify. Obviously, we're talking about a case where it's not a shop. It's this random guy in Craigslist, and we can't find him anymore. Because if you could find him, then we would bring that guy into court, and we would ask him to explain what's going on here. That, so I should have clarified... I, 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 I moved a little too quickly. I should have clarified that. We have no way to contact the seller. That's, this, that's the, rules, the rules of this game right now, is we have no way to contact the seller. The court, you see, tonight we dealt with situations where the court is at a disadvantage because it doesn't actually know, the court has no idea what happened. And the court just has to make the best guess. And what we discussed tonight is how you make that best guess when you don't know. What are some ground rules for making an educated guess when you don't know what happened? That's what today's class is about. And it's absolutely fascinating to me. It's absolutely fascinating because you have a rule and an exception. And now with Migoy, an exception to the exception. Whereas typically we would say a bike, you have a bike, give it back. Bike doesn't mean anything. Possession means nothing. Now you introduce Migoy, maybe a bike does mean something. Oof, you with me? Now it's complicated. All right, Mark, you had a question? Or uh, yeah. Mindy. Uh, so, uh, let's do Mindy and then Mark. Mindy. Hi. Hey, Lily. Lily wants to say goodnight to Grandma because she's. Oh, that's so cute. But I would. Night, Lily. <laughs> I wanted to say earlier that with the trash can, um, that to me is. Oop. We lost you. Hold on, hold on. I'm mute. I got it. I got it. Um, with the trash can, it's. It at first, my first instinct was to say that it was. Since it's movable, it's movable that it's personal property. But then I then I was thinking that it's an extension of the house itself. It's it's part of the real estate because it belongs to the house. It goes with the house. So somebody can't just take right. it. You know, it, it it's an extension of the house. So that's, right, but it's I, I think I think the key is it's less than movable or not movable. It's about the logical. It's about the. It's about why movable or real estate is has a distinction. The reason is because real estate is easy to repossess by someone illegal. It's 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 illegally easily illegally obtainable, and personal property is harder to get. 
But when those lines cross, then you just, you cross those lines, right? In other words, typically it's easier to squat, again, maybe not today, maybe not today, but back in the day, people had fields and lands and houses and whatever and, 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 and fiefdoms and whatever it is, and someone sits on someone else's land, it could happen any day, every day. So that's easy to happen. So the fact that someone's sitting on someone's land doesn't mean anything. We say, bye-bye, see you later, pack up your bags and get out of here, unless it's three years. But, so that's why real estate, because really it's easy. If it's too easy, then it doesn't mean anything. Whereas movable property, paradoxically, movable property is actually property that's usually in your house and it's harder for someone to steal. So therefore, if they have it, we assume that it's, that it's legit, with the exception of things that are outside anyway, because that's easy to take. Then it becomes, again, it's, the, it's not about the name as opposed to the logic. So the logic of land is that it's accessible. The logic of movable property is that it's inaccessible. But if you have property, movable property, that is accessible, then it's like land. So the trash can is accessible. It's like land. Animals are accessible. It's like land. By the way, if you have animals that never go outside and that are locked up inside, I mean, I don't know, locked up, whatever, that are, that are in a secure place, and now someone has it, that means something. That then, we, then we do grant possession nine-tenths of the law. Because then how did they get it? Oh, you want to say they stole it? Do you have proof that they stole it? How do you know they stole it? They're claiming that you sold it to them. So it's much harder to pull it away from them if it was harder to take. Mark, hold on. You got you to unmute. Yeah, you about the bicycle. Yeah. It seems that there's a reward for being a bad liar. Yes. I was waiting for someone to ask that. Yes. It reminds me of John Lovett on Saturday Night Live. When he said, ah, oh, bicycle, yeah. Yeah, somebody else sold it to me first. Sold it to me first. Yeah, that's the ticket. That's what it, re that's what it reminds me Wait, who me said that? Who said that? It was on Saturday Night Live. John Lovett was the, was, was the liar. John, Lo John Lovett is Jewish? Yeah. So he studied Talmud. There's no way that that's not from the Talmud. A hundred percent. Said, yeah, that's that's a ticket. Yeah. That he bought a bike first. It's straight no, no, up. No, 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 no. That was just his, his persona. He said, "Yeah, it's uh, he, he, he searched for an easy thing to say. Yes, uh, somebody else sold it to me first. Yeah. Oh, you're yeah. saying not? Okay, I thought you meant specifically this case. If he no, cited, no, no. The, if he cited this case, that would, no. But yeah, so that yeah, correct, correct. So, so the question is, why do we assume that someone is the best liar in the world? And, and if they do. do, do in a, in a, in other words, why do we assume that if they didn't say the strong lie, then they're not lying? Because if they were a liar, they would say the strong How do we know that everyone will come up with the strongest lie? So there's an interesting uh, Hasidic answer on this. Or one, one of the Rebbe's was asked this once, and he said the following. When someone is pushed against the wall in a, in a court case, they will typically come up with a very good lie. If they're lying, they'll come up with a good lie. <laughs> when you're pushed against the wall, suddenly everyone knows how to lie. If you're lying, if you're lying, suddenly everyone's going to get creative. If you didn't get creative, so you might be a bad liar, but we'll assume that you're telling the truth. It's a, it's a, it's a reverse psychology, 100% reverse psychology application in Jewish law. But again, the, 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 the rule of thumb, the guiding principle is, or the guiding found, foundation here is, we don't, we don't know what happened. We're just making our best guess. When somebody gives us such a random story, then we almost believe it. Because if they were lying, then they're ridiculous. You're, you're, you're admitting that you took the bike? Who? Are you out of your mind? So if this guy's a liar, he would just say, I don't have it. 
The fact that he says, the fact that he admits to it, now you're going to say, so, so then all thieves will study Talmud. And then they're going to say a weaker lie, and then we'll believe them that they're telling the truth because, right? That's a concern. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know a way around that, but anyway. Look, we, we didn't get to the end of the sugya. We didn't get to the end of the topic. But hopefully I'm giving you enough to at least be excited, curious, and or dangerous in the topic. All right. Thank you for joining me tonight. Lily, good to see you. Oh, Robbie. Hey, Robbie. I wasn't, pay- I wasn't paying attention. Sorry. I, I just saw, I saw a half ahead. I'm like, hey. In bed. He wanted to say goodnight to Grandma. Listen. Why aren't you in bed? No, no, no. Um, grandma, Bobby, listen. Judy, look. Yeah. It's in Atlanta. We rolled the clocks back a few hours. It's only 6.55. It's, it's, right be- it's, it's well before bedtime. That's a joke. No, you- <laughs> it's an hour earlier here. I know, I know. I'm joking. All right. We'll see you all. They didn't want to miss a Tama class. What do you mean? All right. Good night, everyone. Great to see you all. Laila Tov. Take care.